Hi, everybody. It is the 9th of June, 2022. My name is Luke Thomas. This is episode, I believe, 119 of my live chat. I hope you are doing well. Uh, today on the program, as you guys know, we will get to, let's see, UFC 275 stuff. I saw some stuff in there about like Mayweather-McGregor legacy, some stuff on Cyril Gaon and the heavyweight title picture, future, that sort of stuff. Whatever's on your mind, we can get to that. Thumbs up on the video if you're watching. Hit subscribe if, if you care to. I always appreciate that when you do. Put this down a little lower. There we are. Um, uh, housekeeping notes. I am still on my bad computer. You guys may have seen me tweet about it. I deleted them afterwards. But I've had a whopper of a computer issue. My main tower that I bought mm, three years ago, I recruited a service. You guys ever use it? It was called Angie's List. Now it's called Angie. I don't know why they changed her stupid-ass name. But I had a technician come through, and uh, it was a disaster. Um, they didn't do a damn thing. They did nothing. They did absolutely. Let me turn this up a little bit here. They did absolutely nothing, and uh, and uh, wasted a bunch of my time and money. So I had to finally take it yesterday to a shop. They think it's a thermal paste issue, um, but in any case, last week I don't know if it was this computer or not. You guys noticed when the live chat was first over that there was only like forty seconds of video, and then it finished rendering out. I don't know if this was the computer issue. I don't know if it was a YouTube issue. I am still on this computer, but I'm hoping to get the other one back Saturday morning. So, there will be a UFC 275, obviously, post-fight show that I'll be doing and a bunch of other stuff. I, the point I'm trying to make is I'm hopeful to get everything back to normal uh, next week or soon enough. Anyway, you get the idea. So, thanks for putting up with it. Thanks for dealing with it. Thank you for being here. I genuinely appreciate it. And uh, as you guys know, if you're new to this, I put up a thread on the community tab right here at youtube.com slash Luke Thomas. You guys fill it up, and then I answer the questions on Thursday. And, of course, you are certainly under no obligation to do so, but if you leave a donation, I'll look to get your question with that donation um, at the end of about an hour or so of free questions. Again, you are not under any obligation, and I know folks all say the same thing. Well, we have to pay you to ask a question. No, you do not. But if you do, I try to give some sort of acknowledgement of the donation. Okay? All right. Um, well, thank you for being here, and without further ado, let's get this party started, okay? Usually I have a stinger that I play, but I don't have it on this computer because it's locked on that one. It's a long story. You guys know. Um, okay, but let's get right to it. So it's 3.03 or about 3.04. I will go to about 4.03 or 4.04 with the free questions. All right, first one up. Luke, how do you f think Cyril Gaon can improve his chances of winning if he should ever fight Francis again? When they fought, it seemed like Francis was simply a lot stronger, yes, and heavier on the ground, yes. So it seems like Gon's options may be somewhat limited in terms of what he can change in a rematch. Disagree. Also, if Francis and Dana got something worked out, do you see Aspinall or anyone else being able to beat him anytime soon? Now, when you say him, do you mean Francis or do you mean Gon? Uh, I hope your rough patch is over, man. It is not. Yesterday was a horrible fucking day in my life. A truly, truly no good Awful day. Um, <laughs> when it rains, it pours, folks. When it rains, it fucking pours. Does it not? I'm just trying to put on a happy face and get through it, to be quite honest with you. So, um, not looking for any sympathy. Everyone's got troubles. I'm sure uh, many of you have worse. But yesterday, and it's been bad for a while. Um, what can you do? It's life, bro. Um, all right. To answer the question, thank you for the generous sentiment, but to answer the question, um, okay, your, your question was, Francis seemed stronger and heavier on the ground. All too true. Seems like Gon's options may be somewhat limited. Totally disagree. And I'll tell you why. 
Gone, I'm not going to say is a finished product in any capacity, and even not on the feet. But if you look at his stand-up game, it is, especially relative to his ground game, and I would say relative to the rest of his peers, frankly, at heavyweight, it is very sophisticated, and it's very developed, right? He has a very clear sense of distance management, about what to throw, how to set it up, um, you know, how to exit, how to enter, what combinations work, what combinations work on what kind of opponent, body type. Like, he is a very, very high-level thinker when it comes to the stand-up game. What I noticed in the Francis fight, and you didn't see this previously, partly because I think some folks didn't elect to wrestle very much or just they had a hard time getting close to him, is that the decision-making I saw in his grappling was not good. It was very, very underdeveloped. He was, for example, I'll never forget this. I'll never forget this. In fact, last weekend, I took my kid and my wife. We went to Awesome Con. Awesome Con is this, uh, it's like Comic-Con. It's a little bit lesser of a thing, but it was still pretty big and pretty cool. Um, and it was here in D.C. And, uh, in fact, they had, what's his face, it was doing, um, they had a bunch of stars. The guy from Rudy was there. And then uh, Gus Fring, a.k.a., um, I, I, he plays a character in The Boys. I forget his name, but he's like the head of the uh, Vought Corporation. I think his name is Giancarlo Esposito. Uh, he was there signing autographs, which was super cool. But the reason I bring all this up is I was actually walking around, and I ran into a guy who, when I, fr- I moved to D.C. in December of 2004, back to D.C. Obviously, I grew up here and then moved away and then came back as an adult. And when I first started training at Lloyd Irvin's back in 2005, um, this was one of my original training partners. He actually has his own school now, and uh, his name is uh, Jason. So shouts to Jason if he sees this. Great, great guy, strong as a fucking ox. Just, just a nightmare to uh, train with, but he's a great training partner, and he's a great guy. And, um, and I remember I was training with him. I remember I was training with him, and uh, it wasn't Lloyd, but it was one of his lieutenants at the time. Uh, it, was a, it was a black belt named uh, Paul. And I remember Paul, we were doing guard passing drills, and I remember that I decided not to pass Jason's guard, and I sat for an ankle lock. And I remember he was like, Paul came over to me and was like, no, 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 not going to happen, not going to let you do it, blah, blah, blah. And the way he explained it was, yes, if you get to a high enough level, there may be a situation where if someone has their feet elevated, you could grab it and go for some kind of a lock. This is especially true if you can apply the lock quickly. This is especially true if you can apply the lock with, for example, without compromising position, right? Because uh, I, I sat to go to the ankle lock. A lot of times you see, like, for example, like um, Victor Estima, what he'll do is there's a th- something called the Estima lock, which can work in the gi as well. You're allowed to do it. He would stand over guys uh, and not necessarily drop his uh, like to his rear end to go for it and so what Paul basically told me at the time and this was like one of the most impactful lessons he was like you need to learn and this was very obviously early on in my training but he was like you need to learn how to pass guard first and then you can worry about all that ankle lock stuff what did you notice that he did when there was one time where Francis had his feet up in the air he grabbed the ankle and sat you know he sat before he had locked it up, he sat there by surrendering position, right? Or at least the bare minimum making it 50-50 in that sense. Not the 50-50 guard, but a 50-50 proposition. Like, that to me, I, the the instant I saw that, my brain went all the way back to Camp Springs, Maryland in 2005. And there's Paul in my face telling me, no, sir. Dude, that is low-level thinking about grappling. And it's not because we think that Cyril isn't smart. Cyril's stand-up is extraordinarily intelligent. And I think his overall game... 
uh, speaks to that. But it turns out to me that his game is very lopsided. In fact, you can go to like the Dante Mays fight and you see something similar. That opponent wasn't able to make him pay, but Francis was able to make him pay. There was decisions, there were, I should say, there were decisions that he was making in that that tells me his ground game is very, at least at the time he fought Francis, very underdeveloped. Very underdeveloped, which means he has a lot of room to improve in his overall calculus about uh, what to go for, when to go for it, what opponents it's going to work on, how to switch off and chain attacks together. Dude, if someone has their feet up in the air and you're not a foot lock expert and you grab it and you sit to your to your guard, dude, it, that's not high level grappling. It's not. Um, you, you, again, you might see high-level grapplers do that, but that's because they'll secure the lock in a way much more so than having to sit um, if they're in a standing. To go from sitting to standing, dude, you're you're giving up a lot there. Um, now, in MMA, the calculus is different, right? Because you, you can go for an esteema lock in jiu-jitsu, and the other guy can't blast you in the face if you're standing. So if you're sitting, that takes that consideration out. So obviously, just trying to say, oh, well, guys do this in sport jiu-jitsu, they should be able to do it in MMA. Again, the calculus is going to be different. But I just want to point out, when he did that and my brain went right back to 2005, I was like, wow, okay. So does he have a lot to improve on? I'm going to say his ground game is relatively, again, for the top of the heavyweight, for the top of the heavyweight, heavyweight division, his ground game is relatively weak. This is why, again, in that Curtis, sorry, in the Francis fight, this is why after that one I was like, we need to see how it looks against Curtis Blades. Now they put him up against what, Tui Vasa is the fight coming up? I think that's right. Um or maybe it's too, I, I, have to, I have to go see who it was. But I, I thought like the Blades one would be a much better test. But here's my thought. The benefit to that if you're gone or his team is that now the UFC is giving you time to get right. The stand-up is, is as good as it needs to be to win a belt. Not by itself per se, but like does your stand-up get you into championship opportunities? Yes. And is it good enough if the rest of your game can be complemented with it to win a belt? I, I think the answer is yes. Um, and of course, there are no guarantees that even if he invests in his ground game, that it will reach the level of his stand-up. But I would argue, humbly, that that dude is a sick athlete. He is, relatively speaking for heavyweight, quite young. And his ground game needs a lot of work, which means he has a lot of time to put into it, which means he, his growth curve in that is pretty significant. There is a lot he can improve upon. Um, I'm curious to see what it looks like over time. All right, this person writes, Hi, Luke. One thing you have brought up many times but never elaborated on, I doubt that's true, is the fact that UFC does not treat MMA as a sport. You and many fighters specifically say this is not a sport. That part is true, yes. Well, it kind of is. Um, some specific examples would be matchmaking being at the whim of Dana and company. That's true. The ranking system being done by a 10 UFC hand-picked MMA journalist. They're not hand-picked like... Well, in a sense, they're handpicked. Like they're not going to invite Josh Gross. The bigger issue with the rankings is that they actually cast a wide net of media invitations, but the better media folks don't want to be involved with it due to conflict of interest considerations. So you're getting, you know, either people who don't agree that there is a conflict of interest, which they could have some good views. I also think, you know, I don't want to besmirch my colleagues if I don't have to, but I do think you're getting a lesser quality of media evaluator in that case, rather than the UFC going and saying, you, 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 you. Didn't work quite that way. The rules changing depending on where the fight takes place. Sort of. The judging criteria changing depending on where the fight takes place. Uh, the weigh-ins are rigged for certain fighters depending on who is weighing them in. Uh, rigged is not the word, but uneven, sure. There are many more, but these are a few examples for you to springboard off of. I have wanted to hear your thoughts on why you don't think it's a sport because you see how the sausage is made. That's really actually not my argument. In my eyes, it's not a sport. 
It is prize fighting, yes. It is closer to being a circus than it is an actual sport, and I'm fine with that. Please do not hold back. Yeah, it's something of a mix between a carnival sport or a carnival activity and a real sport. It's something in the middle. Um, there are two ways to make this argument. One would be if it's a real sport, then you wouldn't have, you know, promoter matchmaking uh, as the way in which you indicated or the sort of uneven treatment jurisdiction to jurisdiction with either the rules or the weigh-in process or whatever the case. And that's a fine argument to make, and I really don't have a whole lot of issue with it. But that's not the one that I make, uh, or at least it's not the one that I exclusively make. The one that I make is as follows. If you just, and you can look at the history of how we got to this position from its early UFC 1 days, fighting is something that exists throughout not merely the human race, but the animal kingdom. And it exists for all kinds of evolutionary reasons, territorial uh Control, mating rights, um, food procurement, you name it. It's got a ton of biological and interspecies and intraspecies function. Um, What we have done is taken that process because humans also exact violence on one another and we have tried to defang it a little bit from its more uh, negative consequences. So we've taken out weapons, you can't hair pull, you can't eye gouge, and we've recruited athletes to do it, and then we've sort of systematized a process to it. Now, if you do that enough, I guess on some level it kind of becomes a sport. But baseball is not something that naturally occurs in nature. Football is not something that naturally occurs in nature. Soccer is not something that naturally occurs in nature. Now, of course, you might respond with saying, yes, but there is play that is a clear function of uh, not just humans, but again, inside the animal kingdom. All too true. But But they have taken that nature of play and then turned that into a game they could create to play inside of it. And then, of course, once it gets to the pro level, it becomes not really so much about fun, but about you know, revenue generation and records and it's a job and that kind of a thing. But it's, it's fighting is something we have just taken that was naturally occurring and then kind of polished it a little bit, put some rules around it, asked athletes to do it, and then just let it rock. To me, inherently, that will always make it separate from a game that we have standardized and formulated. Those two will, for me, always be distinct. Boxing is sort of on a similar level, right? I mean, again, it's sort of a it's a it's a it's a more um, it's a more it's an older form of taking that same inclination of the draw and allure and the necessity of fighting, taking it out of its sort of evolutionary purpose, although not entirely, right? Because sort of males asserting one on dominance on one another is part of that. Um, and you're giving it some kind of rules and, and, and whatnot. MMA to me is, is, is uh, kind of just like that, only I would argue a little bit because of its sort of open rule set, even more speaking to its uh, historical and evolutionary contexts. You, you can call it a sport, and I suppose it would meet most of the criteria once you laid out a definition for it. But to me, because we have just taken something that naturally occurs to people fighting, and then been like, okay, let's put some rules and some rounds and a referee, and you can't do this and you can't do that, and let it rip. That is very, very different than um, let's take a game like basketball where we introduce this new object. The object is the source of winning and losing, possession of it. It's a state of play, Right, and it becomes more than that. It becomes sort of an organized teamwork thing, and, and beyond that, um, for me, these are distinct entities. You may not agree, but that's sort of where I come down on it. Luke, uh, what do you think about the UFC hardly ever promoting fighters? Is the quote glass ceiling there to control the fighters 
and never let them get too much fame and gain leverage to be competitive in the fighter-free market. I don't know what you mean by never promoting them, or hardly ever. I'm not sure what you mean by that. I mean, I got to tell you, like, fighters... Let me think about this for a second. Because in the post-Ultimate Fighter boom, this was a little bit different, maybe. But I would say now, yeah, the UFC probably as a promotional entity doesn't do maybe as much as you might imagine, but I would actually argue they do more than you think. First of all, like, that's a small example, those countdown videos that come out, you know, every Sunday, that's that's promotion. Um, other videos that they put on their YouTube channel, that's promotion. Stuff on social, that's promotion. Um, ticking out ad buys in various newspapers or billboards in Times Square or whatever it needs to be for a local market, that is promotion. Setting up media opportunities, which they do consistently, that's promotion. It's actually not true that the UFC doesn't promote. Now, maybe they don't promote in a way that is visible enough to you. And so that could be a criticism that they're promotion is lacking or not as good as it could be but from a machine standard and an effort and plus Dana White does the media rounds and lots of folks do and then they've got all their like the various people in the in the brass that occasionally do it they've got fighters who's on like you know DC's retired and as a commentator he does it you know uh, Laura Sanko does it like there's a actually a fair amount of promotion how effective and good it is and could it be better in certain respects fair enough but I don't think it's really fair to say they don't hardly promote um and the other consideration is here, they partnered with ESPN. Like when you were partnering with Spike TV back in the day, that was quite valuable for them at that moment in time. But just think about all the ESPN shows and how the UFC can essentially farm out promotional responsibility to them. Put them on Get Up. Put them on First Take, which they do on occasion. Put them on various shows. Our, uh, DC and RC have a show. Uh, Chael has a show. I don't know if it's still running based on his legal issues, but you get the idea. Like, There's a lot of that going on as well. So while that's not directly the UFC machine sort of organizing it, it's a coordinated effort in general to promote, yes, MMA and things beyond just UFC, but it's a lot of heavy-handed UFC content. So question two, what would you think of a Nick Diaz versus Matt Brown fight? Love it. I think that's a much more appropriate fight. I favor Matt Brown to win, but um, it's pretty competitive probably. Probably. I feel like that is the only fight he can really have. I think you're speaking about Nick. While someone like Lawler is fighting Barbarian. Thanks for all the content. Long-time listener, first-time posting. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I would be in favor of that fight. Uh, much more than I would like Nick Diaz versus Kamaru, which you heard Dana say. Yeah, no chance, which I think is the right call. Luke, on a scale of 1 to 10, how interested are you in the road to UFC tournament that just started? What are your thoughts on this type of setup as an entry point for new fighters getting into the UFC? Not seeing the contracts, which would be something that you would have to look at to get a clear sense of exactly how good of a opportunity this is, right? Like, Ultimate Fighter seemed like a great opportunity early, and then you look at the contracts, it's like 10 fights or 14 fights, whatever it was, that they had to fulfill before they could get out of that contract. For example, like, in the NFL, there's a rookie contract, but there's a, there's a time limit on the rookie contract. So if you get drafted in the first round, you're a quarterback, and now you play for the Washington Commanders, which I realize they've got Carson Wentz, but imagine they drafted someone in the first round. Um, that that player would be on a rookie contract, which would not be as valuable as their next contract. It would be inherently lower in value, but there's a time limit on it. And it's I think it's three seasons, something like that, maybe four. I have to go back and check. But after that, and you're seeing a lot of guys at this particular season who are now graduated to the next one, and that's when the real money comes in. Again, that's by, by the way, that's also just negotiated from the CBA, um, with, inside the CBA from the NFL Players Association to the NFL. Like all that's agreed upon, right? So the players actually signed up for that 
in not just a way where like it's a take it or leave it scenario, right? Like you want to be on tough, this is the contract. No, the union who speaks on their behalf negotiated that in. And of course, every time the CBA is renegotiated, all that kind of stuff is tweaked. What's the overall percentage of rev share? What about rookie contracts? What about you know uh, uh, veteran minimums? All that kind of stuff. That, that plays into it. So if you're asking me about the road to UFC, I'm actually quite interested in it, but I don't know what the contracts are like. Um, time is an issue because I have a lot to prep for to do something like this or morning combat more generally. Like it requires a lot of reading and research. Um, and I will say that to me, this feels a little bit more like what they're doing is priming the pump of this market. I think they've realized that they've not had as much uh, growth inside some pretty key markets inside the Asian world, let's say, but which of course would include China, Japan, Korea, but also, you know, Vietnam, Laos, Thailand, Indonesia, that kind of thing, Singapore, where they haven't had as much development in that market as I think they've liked. I think this is probably a way to prime the pump, right? So you not only can discover new talent, which you can then feature on some of your bigger cards, but you begin to have much more of a presence in that market, a recruiting force in that market, which itself, if that is successful in any of these places where it airs in those local markets, that then can be leveraged for you know additional programming. You can put those fighters then on local events there. Like it, To me, it's less about, hey, let's find these guys who are ready to go in the UFC, although there might be some. Where, like, for example, Contender Series is much more of that because, like, Contender Series is, is not exclusively American. They pull fighters from everywhere, Brazil and Canada and UK and some other places. But you are you are in a market where um, it's much more developed. The talent is much more developed. And so fighters who come out of there, at least in theory, in theory, would be more ready for um, the big show. Let me see this, make sure everything's good. Yes, okay. That That's what I would say. So I, I'm interested in it. I will watch as much as I possibly can. I, I suspect that a few gems will come out of there. But to me, they're priming the pump of an Asian market push that I think is probably going to happen in 2023 and beyond. Luke, is Nadal, Rafael Nadal, Rafael Nadal, mentally the toughest athlete ever? He's up there. Can you think of any athlete that can rival him? Maybe Cristiano Ronaldo. The thing is, like, I always struggle with this because the reality is to play tennis at an extremely high level and to do it over the course of, like, five sets where the game can go hours, hours at a time, and, you know, every single battle is tooth and nail, and you have to have your focus on for an extraordinarily long period of time. That is, that is remarkable. That is truly remarkable. You can like tennis or not, dude. That's not easy what they do. That is extremely difficult. To say nothing of the ability to develop tennis skills to even play in a tournament like that. And then to win it multiple times, which he's done 14 times, right? He was, he's won the French Open, I think, right? Something like that. Um, amazing. He's an amazing guy. But, like, at the same time, you know, like, that's not... The, that is an extraordinary level of difficulty, but it's a different kind of difficulty than what, for example, Darren Elkins has had to push through, where you know people are cutting him open and beating the ever living dog shit out of him, and he just finds a way to like block all that out and then get back to the winning column. Like that is a, that's, I don't know how you want to categorize that because one is like a very urgent moment of extreme, um pain, suffering, fatigue, 
and and mental pressure that is a little bit different than playing at a, a very high level without your body being attacked in that way, but you have to have a real clear mental focus. It would require someone who's like a sports scientist to more perfectly articulate those differences. But to be clear, like, could someone like Darren Elkins participate in a sport in the way that Nadal has and win? Probably not. Like, even if he had the same tennis skills, like, that level of mental acuity is so exceedingly rare. Conversely, do, you know, do I think Rafael Nadal, if he had taken up MMA, could have the same wherewithal to deal with those difficult circumstances in the way that Darren Elkins could? No, probably not. It's sort of asking, like, a question like, who's a better athlete, the sprinter or the lifter? Well, they're doing different things. They're doing different things. It's not the, there's not one type of athleticism. You can get someone who is so good at athletics that they can do a wide array of things. But when you get like a you know like a marathon runner, the very best marathon runner versus the very best you know Olympic weightlifter like Lasha Talahadze or something, there's just different body types, different realities, different kinds of focus that they have to have. Um, each impressive in their own right, but not the same. Luke, having seen Holly's last fight put an idea in my head, do you think there's a chance that it was the Jackson Wink camp that was behind John Jones's defensive and more recently boring style? This person writes. He doesn't seem to have a naturally cautious personality type, to say the least. Is there any chance that leaving Jackson Wink, we might see a more aggressive risk-taking John Bones Jones? That's an interesting question. Well, I can say this. I remember when John went from uh, the Team Bomb Squad up in Endicott, New York. That I, I, I'm so fucking old and pathetic. I've been around that long. Um, where he was basically teaching himself on YouTube and training with some decent guys out there, but not, like a, at the time, not a world-class team. I don't know the state of the, the team these days. And then when he went to Jackson's, one of the criticisms there at the time, now this was still when Jackson's was, you know, the elite team of all the elite teams, um, was that they had taken out the spontaneity of his game. That they had, you know, before he was throwing all this crazy stuff, and that they had turned him into much more, not so much defensive, but they had taken the the electric joy out of his game. So you're sort of picking up on something that has been, you're tugging on a thread that actually has a little bit there to it. Uh, I would say that Holly's always been a little bit defensively minded. She's never, you know, you can see the situations like with... Like with Ronda Rousey, it's like, oh, she had this brutal head kick. But Ronda was charging into her constantly, constantly pressuring her, constantly charging into her. If you're not going to do that and you're going to have someone that's you know a little bit more careful, Holly's natural disposition is to fight, it seems anyway, on the back foot. You know, has Wink, has Jackson Wink fed that? Probably to some extent. Um but I think in the case of Jones going from Team Bomb Squad to Jackson's, they were just trying to clean up his game, which, yes, took out some of the electricity of it, but it made it much more suitable for elite fighting purposes. I, you know, I tend to take John at his word on this one a little bit, which I don't do very often and I won't do very often, but I think he was burned out. I think he was unmotivated. I don't think he was all that interested in a lot of those contests. And I think he was doing it just to, you know, get back out there because he had lost so much time. But I think he had also in his head moved on and didn't quite realize it. I don't think you're going to see a radically different John at heavyweight. I don't know exactly what we're going to see, which is part of the question there. But, you know, while I do think it's probably fair to say somewhat Jackson may, the Jackson Wink camp might have this 
capacity to make people a little bit more defensively minded. There's a lot of exceptions to that rule. Keith Jardine was a huge one. And uh, I also think it's a little bit more of uh, John's disposition at that time, his competitive disposition at that time. Because you're speaking to like the fact that this guy takes crazy risks. Yes. And again, that was his natural inclination when he first started. But just having a... You, you don't want your style to betray who you are, right? It has to... It ha- there has to be a connectivity to it. But you also don't want your style to indulge who you are. Because who you are might be great for certain things. It might be bad for other ones. Everyone's got, like, I'm not very patient, right? My wife complains about it fairly regularly. I'm not very patient. Um, I would need a style that did not accommodate that. I would need a style that was maybe a little bit faster paced, a little bit of, like, action-oriented, but not one where I get to indulge my, my lack of patience. That's actually indulging a character flaw probably to an extent. Luke, I just became a dad on Sunday. Congratulations, my friend. You are not going to sleep for a while. And I was wondering, at what point becoming a father really sent your drive to succeed into overdrive? My daughter is only four years old, and I feel ready to run through walls. It will only grow, actually. It will only grow. I would actually say that um, I didn't really begin to feel... Like I was just overcome with all these weird emotions. Like I had, I don't know how to explain my stomach when my baby was born. It was like part graduating from high school joy, part like nausea, part my head was spinning. I mean, I was just overcome with emotion and there's no clear way to describe it. That settled down and then, they don't really tell you this, but like when you first have a kid, dude, your job for like, well, this is true for the entirety of their life in some ways, but especially when they're like, when you just have one, all you're trying to do is keep that baby alive. You know what I mean? <laughs> Change the diapers, make sure it's clean, feed it, make sure it gets the sleep it needs, and then the day just kind of repeats itself. I would say that like when it really began to dawn on me was when, and I've said this before, you don't realize the layers of personhood, all the little things that have to come together to make a fully developed human I don't mean like going from fetus to birth. I mean like once after birth happens, how do you take that little baby and then turn it into a functioning, if not an adult, a fully functioning human? You just take for granted all the little steps that's required. I think there was this accumulation maybe around the three-month mark. And don't get me wrong, I love my daughter from the moment she was born. But at the three-month mark, there's a certain kind of spark that they have where they begin to pay attention to things and grab and pull and look at you. And it was only when there's like this moment where you begin to realize the enormity of the task and like the depth of the love that you really began, for me, that really began. And a lot of fathers, by the way, struggle about this. I had, a, I had someone tell me that some fathers don't immediately connect to their kids, son or daughter, and that they shouldn't feel bad about it. Like it takes a time. I, I immediately connected, but I can definitely say that at that three to four month mark, especially, especially at the six month mark, it goes exponentially higher, like the level of attachment and, um, you know, the way in which it, you think about your, your place in the world. Hi, Luke. I often find journalists criticizing sport athletes and sport organizations for their involvement in Saudi and Middle Eastern backed events. Uh, but surely more criticism should be laid at Western governments who supply weapons to these countries and make trade deals with these countries. Yeah, of course. It seems the public and media outlets always try holding sporting athletes to a higher standard than their own governments. Well, you got to ask what you want out of this. 
I saw Glenn Greenwald was tweeting about this. I, I don't usually like outrageously disagree with him, but I outrageously disagreed with him here, which was he was like, well, you know, it's shocking to watch Western media not say anything about their governments and then to go out and, you know, lambast these players. Not that he was excusing the players per se, but that it was a mistreatment of where the actual problem lay. But dude, it's like, what do you want us to do? If you work for the Golf Digest, are you supposed to be weighing in on the U.S.'s involvement in Saudi Arabia as, you know, the normal editorial purview of what you do? I mean, that sounds fucking insane. Would you guys like me? I mean, I realize this chat's a little bit different, but like, would you like me to spend time on MK, top of the show, getting to the fact that, you know, wow, the uh, the U.S., uh, not led, but essentially sponsored a uh, blockade of Yemen that Saudi Arabia is doing is really a poor thing. Would you like me to spend time doing that on MK? It seems that seems like a total outside reach of what the actual purview is. The purview is okay. Now that there is a golf involvement, and I, in this theoretical world, work for the Golf Digest. Yes, now it seems relevant to speak about it. And of course, you can't just bash the players. You have to say, well, the players are you know, taking blood money, but also it should be noted that our own, you can then, you can then put another consideration in there, but I really don't understand the argument about, at least in this case, maybe if you work in regular politics, that'd be one thing, but if you cover sports, your argument is to what extent your sport intersects with the rest of the world, right? So if, imagine there were no athletes, uh, you know, from Russia and Ramzan Kadyrov was doing like was in you know engaged in tennis or something would you want me to talk about Ramzan Kadyrov Ramzan Kadyrov is only relevant in our context by virtue of his MMA involvement so if you want to make an argument about you know people who cover politics for a living who might be weighing in on this or people who cover world governments who might be weighing in on this and then not saying something then fine uh, but if you cover t tennis or in this case if you cover golf for a living it seems outrageous to ask them to not to ignore this, but again, it's both. You have to say something about the athlete and the government's fair, but absent the athletes participating in this live or LIV, whatever the fuck you say it, golf uh, endeavor. What is the point of bringing it up? It seems totally outside what anyone wants from you, what your expertise is, uh, and what you should be talking about, unless it intersects with in that case, the golf world. Look, your opinion on sports washing, fair enough, and how it can be regulated. I don't think it can be regulated, nor do I think it should be regulated. It has become increasingly prevalent in boxing. It's always been prevalent in boxing. You should go back and look and see why Muhammad Ali fought in Zaire. You should look into that. Uh, football, soccer, and more recently, golf. Do you ever find yourself questioning your own involvement in sports that can have such unethical governance? Yes. Yeah, all the time. I don't fit in in MMA at all. It's actually a pretty poor fit for me. Um, you know, I get a lot of people who write me being like, oh, I also feel like, uh, you know, like you do. Like we, you know, strangers in a land of people who see the world in vastly different ways. Um, but I think we are the decided minority. Yeah, I don't fit into MMA at all whatsoever. I find that there is a, um, I don't, I don't see a lot of effort at, at, um, erudition about the world in general. I don't see a lot of effort at moral reasoning. In fact, I see only, I mean, listen, the, prize fighting is not built for clean ethical, um, 
it's it it can't be how do I say this exactly? You put me on the spot here a little bit. I'm trying to articulate it. I have found that combat sports generally, boxing pretty bad about this too. Not not quite as bad, but pretty bad. Or it's been worse long term, but not as bad these days. But again, still pretty bad. Um these are sports that are populated with people, and I'm not just speaking about the athletes, but everyone in it, including media, including people like me too. Um, it is populated by people who I don't think have given a great deal of thought to anything other than themselves and their occupation. I don't really believe that they care a whole lot. Again, this is generalizing. I'm sure you will find a lot of examples where that's not true. But I think the general tenor that I have seen over time is um, these are not like people who have a great deal of awareness about the rest of the world. And even if they did, they just really don't care. And I think those kinds of people are in general attracted more to fight sports for a lot of reasons, not least of which is, dude, fighting is a violent and vicious thing. And it if you really deeply care about, like if you really thought that humans exacting trauma on the way that they do in each other in fight sports was a problem, you probably would not watch fight sports. You probably might have grander ethical considerations. I tend to think that, you know, to the extent you can clean it up and you can put rules and you can regulate it, that it's better that society lets things like this happen. But the way I find myself on the outside looking in is that um, I tend to think there should be in many ways greater precautions that are taken to not, uh, to, to better morally reason through kind of ethical dilemmas like this, like who you want to do business with. You know, to me, it's not really, I'll say, I'm going to keep saying this. I don't think in general MMA, not just UFC, but in general MMA does a very good job at attracting people who just aren't white males, to be totally honest with you. I don't think that there's much of an effort beyond like, oh, we should develop in other countries. Yes, but like, I'm going to keep saying it. I, I, I've been to numerous, numerous boxing events that were majority Latino or majority black. I don't think I've ever even seen one on tape like that for MMA. And I don't think that's a coincidence. And I think people should reflect long and hard on why that may be. And it's because I don't believe there's a lot of effort at making sure that this industry cares about them, <laughs> to be quite candid. Like even when they go to Brazil. You, it's the the audience is majority, vast majority white. Like, why would that be? Um, you know, so you're asking about a different consideration here. And I know that anytime anyone brings this up, there's always good. Listen, I'm sure there's some mouth breathers in the chat, and I'm sure I'll get emails about it who don't want to ever think about these things, which really they, they think they're dunking on me, but they're just proving my point. This is not the fight, the fight world is not built for. Um, the kinds of considerations that I think a healthier, like this is the thing that always gets me. You see a lot of people in the industry that have a certain ethos about the way the world should work. I think in part by the way in which MMA works, like a certain total lack of concern for others. And then they, they paste that onto the rest of the world as if this is like a governing doctrine that could work. And to me, it's like total fucking lunacy. I mean, you can have a certain way in which you want to view MMA fights in competition that is a little bit cutthroat, right? But you must know you have to stop right there. Um, and they don't. They just paste that lack of concern for others right on top of it. And it's, I'm going to get mine and fuck the next guy. And I think it just attracts a certain 
type of person who is totally unconcerned with ethics, totally unconcerned with what matters, totally unconcerned with health and safety. Um, I, I, I've been in MMA long enough to know that there was a, a – it didn't last very long because it turned out that when you got it regulated, there was a much greater effort to have more of it. But I distinctly recall early, early in the NHB days, so like from 2000 – or even before that, but let's say 2000 to 2004 – there was a big effort to get MMA on as many like Native American properties as you could because it was like fuck commissions. We don't want anything to do with them. And again, they have their own tribal properties there, but like or unregulated underground fights, like where there's no commission having a say. Dude, that was a real thing. It didn't, never got big enough legs to matter, but they tried. They certainly tried. Why would you? Why would you do something like that? Unless you just totally don't believe in the idea of safety, welfare, best practices enlightened ideas about healthcare for fighters. <laughs> it's just totally unenlightened to think you can do something like that. Now, I grant, I grant we're in a different space where, yes, you can go to places where there isn't a commission and you can self-regulate and you can achieve a lot of the same ends. But that's only because you have a much more advanced industry. In golf, you know, I don't know that it attracts people who lack the capacity to morally reason in the same kind of way, but uh, the money is just so overwhelming. It's so overwhelming they can't say no. I mean, or these people can't say no. And honestly, like, I don't know how they're going to fix that because greed is extremely powerful. It's a powerful force. Very powerful force. Luke, do you think Cambosis will really get the rematch? And is it even worth seeing? He will get the rematch because it's in his uh, contract. Uh, a little birdie told me that it's almost impossible for them to not have the rematch by virtue of how much they're going to be guaranteed to get in it. So it's a foregone conclusion at this point. But like, dude, Cambosis could not box with Haney. Now, a second time could be different. Uh, we'll have to see. Maybe he could sell out a little bit more if he's behind the eight ball in the later rounds or something like that. But uh, yeah, you're going to see it. You're going to see it. What is my grilling setup like? I will tell you that um, I had a grill. You guys might not remember this. Around 2016, 2017, something like that. Do you guys remember I had a house fire? Some of you might not know this. I had a house fire. It didn't destroy the whole house. I'm in the house that I was in. Uh, I was in it was in New York, and I was about to go on the air, and my wife like was calling me, calling me, calling me, calling me. And I finally picked up the phone. She's like, there was a fire. And like, you know, first things first is like, are you okay? Are the dogs okay? Who's okay? Everyone's okay. Like everyone went to the next house. Firefighters showed up immediately. I have a fence where I have a giant like sliding door on tracks that we custom built. <laughs> and uh, and all you have to do is put your hand on top of the, I mean, it's locked. If it's unlocked, um, all you have to do, and it was unlocked at the time. All you have to do is put your hand on it and it just slides over because it's on wheels. I guess the fire department didn't realize that and they sawed the bitch in half. And all of my deck was burned, my garage underneath was burned, and the back half of the house was burned. Um, I have my insurance through USAA, and so they covered it. I, I bring all this up to say my, my, it, one of the casualties of the fire was my grill got taken away. Um, it was a propane grill. What was this person asking? Do you grill with propane? Yeah, I, I prefer charcoal. I prefer charcoal, but I, I was grilling with propane at the time. Um, but I don't have one now. I haven't had. I never. I never bought another one after that. Uh, I guess I should have, but I didn't. So there is my there's my grilling setup. It doesn't really exist. 
Uh, Luke, I've been watching a lot of your dissected videos, and I love them, especially the ones on Habib. How come you haven't done one on John Jones? I would love to see a video on him as a fighter, similar to the video you made on Shavkat Rachmanov. Um, because he's been inactive for the most part. Like, again, you know, you go back to the, what was it, 2017, to whatever it was when John didn't want to answer my question. And I said it at the time, I only really became, became disgusted with John or the accumulation in the last year or two when he clearly has a lot of issues to deal with. And, you know, especially the last one, which was just gross and awful beyond any level of words I could give to it. I find it utterly repugnant what happened. And I don't have a problem saying that. But even after he had that moment with me, I really didn't. I know everyone else cared. I didn't really care all that much. Not, I mean, I cared that it was an issue, but like fighters had gotten really mad at me before. They've been really mad at me since. That was not new. It was new that it was public, but it was not new. The point I tried to raise is I actually didn't mind. Not that I didn't mind. I didn't. It was never going to be an issue for me to not um, cover him at the time. I was like, you, you doesn't matter what they say. You, you've got to treat it with as much neutrality as possible. I'm in a different place in my career. I don't really feel like um, giving a lot of coverage to him. Uh, other than what I have to, but certainly if he won, I would try to do that. I would try to take a look at, or you know, if there if there is some kind of major lesson to learn from his uh, impending win or impending loss, I would try. To, I would try with my best to do it. But the basic reason is he's been gone a lot, and in that time, I found that there was a lot of other people's games that I really, really liked. I really grew to love Max Holloway's game. I grew to love uh, Habib's game. I grew to love, um, you know, now Shavkat Rachmanov and Sean Brady and. A lot of other guys. There's a lot of other people now that are doing really interesting, fun, cool stuff that I like. And certainly John is probably the most successful fighter I've ever seen. But he has been absent. And um, for those reasons, I don't really have a lot to say. Um, but, you know, I suspect on some level that will change going forward. Or he retires and, you know, what the hell happens? I don't know. But Luke, the other day, uh, thanks to the YouTube algorithm, your interview with Joshua Fabia came up. Y'all, y'all remember that? And I watched it. I got to say, I have a feeling you gave him way too much benefit of the doubt out of respect to Diego. No, but I'll, I'll get to that in a second. And today's LT probably would be a bit more straight towards a person like that. No, and I'll tell you why. Just wondering how do you reflect back to the interview uh, now that a few years has gone and he's been exposed and MK has been sweeping up award after award, LOL. LOL. Thanks and take care. So here was my strategy that whole time. And I had a, I, I, uh, you know, who messaged me like after the interview was over was like Joe Lazan hit me up. He's like, dude, you got the patience of Job. And I was like, Joe, that's not the issue. I, I had a strong feeling that if I tried to be very combative with him, even if I was in the right to do so, right? Totally something I could do and no one would blame me for it. That was not what I was looking to do. I could have... I chose not to. He seemed to me to be not very bright. And he seemed to me to be very chatty. So what I thought was, I'm not going to let him step completely all over me, but I, here's what I am going to do. I'm going to give him just enough rope for him to do all the damage to himself that he needs to. And that is exactly what he did. I actually thought it worked out quite well. I didn't get to everything that I wanted, and I recognize that I took a very defensive posture in the interview. It was, I had a conversation and a meeting with my producer before 
that interview came on and we talked about what is the strategy going to be for this interview. A lot of times I don't have one. Like when I used to have Daniel Cormier on on my radio show relatively frequently, I didn't have one. I just wanted to talk to him because he's a great conversationalist. But sometimes you get these people and you have to think, dude, what is what what information do you want to get and what's the best way to get it? I wanted him to tell me as much as possible. And I wanted him to to believe that this was a, a place he could come to do that. And I, and I gave him that. I actually did do that. And in fact, if he was not so combative and he was not so out there, there wouldn't have been a whole lot of that interview that w- would have been remarkable. I mean, I let him have the driver's seat in the interview. It was intentional because I knew he would crash it. I knew he would crash it. And that is exactly what he did. He crashed the shit out of that thing. Perfect. Worked like a charm. So that was an intentional strategy to make that interview be what it was. Luke, I've often heard you list off your favorite rap albums, but I've never heard you mention West Side Connections Bow Down. Is it the best gangster rap album of all time? No. Um, uh, get on your knees. Buck naked, please. Y'all remember that? I think I was... I was a, when did that song come out? I think I was a junior in high school when that came out. Maybe a senior, something like that. Something like that. Um, that was funny. That was really funny. No, it's not. Mac-10 I like. Uh, Dub C I like. Obviously, Ice Cube's a legend. It's a great album, but no, not one of my favorites. What's the most amount of work you've done to cover a story that you released and one you didn't release? Boy, the graveyard of... I've got some huge stories I've never released because there was a series of people that needed to talk in each one of them and they were fucking mum. Um, Most amount of work you've done to cover a story. I don't know, man. I've spoken to like 20 people for a story before. Not all of that made print. Some of that was just for research. Actually, a lot of that was for research. Um, Maybe not quite 20. I think more like maybe closer to 15 or 16, something like that. Um, but I've had a couple, I've had, man, I've had a few stories. Uh, and there was one story I had, fuck, I can't say who it's about, but it was about a shady character. But then, the and the evidence that the person gave me was pretty good, but not good enough to run with. And then the person who gave me the information turned out to be, if not equally shady, shady enough where I didn't know what I could trust from them anymore. And so I couldn't run it. Um, I've had a few of those. I've had a few of those. Uh, I've always been curious about the back-end production for the episodes and was wondering when you create topics. Do you and BC discuss when talking points or specific responses you'll have before filming an episode? No need to reveal too much. Yeah, this is easy. So Sundays, I make the rundown. I write the rundown with topics, questions, um, all the various points we'd like to hit. It's a rough draft. I send it to BC. He looks over it. He makes adjustments that he wants or believes are in order. We have a back and forth about it. We come to an agreement, and I send it out to the team. On Tuesday, uh, my producer puts together a shell. He does a lot of the heavy lifting. I tend to fill in some of the details. That's Wednesday's show. Repeat that process for Friday, except switch me out for BC. So BC and the producer have this sort of back and forth. I fill in a couple of details. You know, like Again, like what BC does on Sundays for me. And then he so, so so BC runs most of the editorial direction on Wednesdays, and I run it for like Wednesdays or for, for Friday, excuse me, and I run it for Wednesdays and Sundays. I will tell you that we've had conversations where 
we actually want to break that up a little bit where like I would do the Sunday rundown or let's say Monday rundown. Um, my producer would do Wednesdays and then all by himself and then BC would do all of Fridays. But the way it works now is because you got to remember, I, I know BC jokes about it, but I, I, I did have the producer credits initially. I know it's a joke, but it was a real thing. So for a time anyway, so Remember, MK used to be just once a week on Mondays. So we just got in the habit of me running it out, firing it off, him editing it, going back and forth, and boom. And then we never really developed a formal process, but that was how it goes for Wednesdays and Thursdays. Now, for other stuff like resume review or pregame or whatever, there's a completely different process depending on who's hosting, and it's a little bit different from there. In honor of Glover Fight Week, who is the baddest man on the planet above the age of 40? Outside of Glover, some suggestions. Olenek, Overeem, and recently retired Daniel Cormier. Yeah, Cormier is up there. Did you all see Jerome LeBanner, <laughs> age 50, winning MMA fights with takedowns no less? Jerome LeBanner, and I'm saying his name like a total asshole because I'm not French, but uh, he made his, he'll be 50, I think, in December. He made his kickboxing debut in 1992 ladies and gentlemen in 1992 I was 11 or 12 me <laughs> I'm like old man fucking river over here and I was in elementary or maybe middle school at that point like think about that and my man just a week or two ago is out there hitting double legs at age 50 that's pretty great that's that man gives me some hope A few weeks ago on Morning Combat, y'all mentioned the best fighters with a 50-50 record. Where does Kevin Randleman, who was 17 and 16, land in that category? Does that change anything about his record being closer to 500 than BJ Penn, who was 16, 14, and 2? A little bit. A little bit. The difference would be that BJ started in a very early era, too, but then kind of continued well past that into a more modern era. And so got caught up in more modern style of matchmaking, modern style of... Um, you know, the routine of accepting fights and on the level of that. You got to think of Randleman's, this is not quite true, but you should think of Randleman's resume as a little bit akin to like early era women's fights. Like you ever seen um, like a, a woman pioneer, not, not Mugumi Fuji-E, but like maybe somebody else. You'll look at it and it'll be like, they'll be like, you know, 10 and 7. You're like, that's not the most distinguished record, but like they may have been, in the case of women, they may have been fighting, you know, way outside their weight class or whatever. Kevin probably took on a lot of fights inadvisably at the end of his run. Like when he was in strike force, he was totally past it. Like there was a lot that went into that. Um, but he also competed in a totally different era um, as well. And, you know, it, it just wasn't as systematized and clean a process back then. And so because it wasn't as systematized and clean, you get a lot of these jumbled results in that way. Um but yes, you know, the losses are what the losses are. It's just that BJ, Kevin Randleman was great and was, you know, his. I remember his win over Mirko and I remember his slam of Fedor. I remember the uh, the MMA underground going fucking bonkers when Kevin Randleman, dude, if you've never seen Kevin Randleman spike Fedor on his head, it is the, na it is it's to this day, that slam and the Arona slam of, uh, or the Rampage slam of Arona, you could put in Matt Hughes, Carlos Newton, there's been some other ones too. Obviously, Jessica Andrade, Rose Namajunas is up there. But that slam of Fedor is maybe the most insane slam in all of MMA. It's, it's, if it's not number one, it's at worst three. Where Randleman picks him up and not only suplexes him, but picks him up and then leaves his own feet. 
to drive him into the mat, and Fedor somehow found a way to fucking hang on. I thought for sure, for sure, I thought that Randleman was going to be, or uh, that that Fedor was paralyzed, and then he came back and won. <laughs> you know, and I remember Morrow's call when he knocked out Mikro Krokop. Obviously, BJ had some extraordinary wins as well, but um, I would I would I would grade uh, Randleman a little bit more on a curve based on the early days of his competition. Uh, thoughts on Madrid versus Liverpool match, and will you be watching the World Cup later this year? I thought for sure Madrid was going to lose. I, I do think that Liverpool was the better team. Um, I tweeted that out. Like, you know, they, they do. Like, they, what was the stat that I saw? Like, again, I'm, not, I'm, I'm just a soccer fan. I'm not, I don't present myself to be anything more than just a fan when it comes to soccer. There was a stat that I saw. I cannot remember the exact stat, but it was something like, expected goals given where the shots were and everything else and the expected goal total should have been close to three um you know Thibaut Courtois was just a fucking brick wall dude he had the perform like that's one of the greatest goalkeeper performances I've ever seen I just flat out and dude that's what Madrid does they bend they don't break and then they come back and they fire one on you that that pass from Valverde to Vinny was They've been, you know, it's been more so uh, Benzema and Vinny all season. But, dude, Valverde is a completely just sensational young player for the team. You know, the thing that got me was like, what's his name? Jamie Carragher? Is that his name? Uh, these English broadcasters who just like when they're asked, why does Madrid succeed? I listened to some podcasts from some folks who some of them were British It was a, it, and some of them were American. And they were talking about it. They actually broke down the tactics of it and, you know, uh, how Carvajal was doing what he was doing and all the sort of Casemiro's role and how it moved space this way. And like, they went through all the tactical explanations, you know, these fucking guys who apparently played the game, who are well paid, they get on TV and they're like, well, that's just because they're Real Madrid. Like motherfucker, what did they did something in the match? They didn't just coast on the shield on their fucking Jersey. Like they said, or shirt, however you want to say it. Like, you know, it wasn't magic. <laughs> there was reason. Say what the reason is. It drives me fucking crazy that when people 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 hate Real Madrid, and I get that they don't ever want to give Madrid credit, and I get that. But dude, if they beat a team, dude, if they, they look at what look at the run they made to win their 14th title. Look at the teams they built. Yes, and in particular the 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 abnormality of the 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 comeback win in the in the semis was kind of crazy. But like in the game in the finals, you can pinpoint what happened. They got. Uh, outrageously good goalkeeper who had the performance of his life. I think that explains the vast majority of it in many cases. But they had a series of tactical choices that they made in defensive overloads that they were looking for that kept them in the game. And dude, when they are pushing downhill with a guy like Vinny who can run his fucking ass off and create space, magic happens, dude. They do that all the time. They do that all the time. So this shit like, oh, it's the Real Madrid. It's the ghost of Real Madrid. It's the, it's the you know... It's just what Madrid does. That's not saying, you're just not, dude, you're not saying anything. You're literally saying nothing. Um, that shit drives me crazy. But, I, you know, I, listen, who played better the majority of that game? Fucking Liverpool played better the majority of that game. It's just that's, Madrid often finds ways to win despite being outplayed for long stretches. That's the key to the Madrid success in many ways. Um, they kind of absorb, it's a bit of a rope-a-dope style. They kind of absorb 
what the best has to offer. And if they let their guard down a little bit, which they tend to do over time, and again, there are certain defensive overloads that they were making, then you get chewed up. That's how they win. Um, someone's asking about the baby formula shortage. I do think there is some blame. I, 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 I candidly, I'm so lucky that I should have paid more attention to it because, you know, I just got out of the state. Well, I've been out of the stage for a while where my kid doesn't have formula, but you know, I, I lived through the formula stage for a long time. My wife breastfed until about six months. And then after that it was formula only. Um, and, uh, terrible my, my biggest the biggest thing that i could take away from it is like dude y'all are not gonna get me to say nice things about biden like you may not like that i say negative things about desantis or trump fine but you will be hard pressed to find that moment where like oh he was saying nice things about biden the guy is incompetent and i do not like him i don't i don't trust him to do a great job there's probably some things he's done better than others fine but i don't like him I don't like him at all. I don't like the Democratic Party. I don't like, I don't like, I don't, you know, <laughs> Chuck Schumer with his fucking glasses down to here. I mean, this guy is an absolute disaster for anybody who cares about similarly aligned politics. And even then, I don't even know if I have that with him anymore. You're not going to get me to say nice things about him. I don't find him to be particularly competent. I don't like the administration. I don't like half, two thirds, 75% of the things that they've done. I detest it. And I don't like him. And, you know, I think that they're going to get their asses kicked in November and he's probably going to be a one-term president and he probably should be. Um, but that doesn't mean I think that Trump is a, somehow a superb alternative. If anything, I think he's probably worse, but you know, would you like me to say, like, I think the, the issue was the FDA wouldn't allow um, formula from Europe for no really good reason. Yeah. That's a pretty fair criticism to make, I, I would imagine. And also like they've not done a good job. Inflation is a complicated thing, but they do bear some responsibility for it, particularly with the way in which the fed handled it. Um, but yeah, like, you know, if you if you don't like the things I say about the right wing guys, fine. But you are I'm telling you, I get labels like, oh, he's like a Democrat to the core. Like, no, I hate the Democratic Party and I can't stand Joe Biden and I don't like him. You've mentioned that you don't have a good work life balance. What do you find yourself giving up to do your work schedule? Fun? <laughs> I don't have a lot of fun. I know the saying, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, but I, um, the thing I used to do was, you know, I would just spend all day on the computer and I would watch videos all day and read all day and make phone calls and blah, blah, blah. And now, um, you know, my daughter basically needs someone to look after her from five o'clock on. And, you know, my wife can't do it all the time because my wife's a corporate event planner. She travels too. And so you know, and I need those weekends. Like she knows that like, for example, there's UFC 275 this weekend. I need that time to go work on it. But like, I, you know, there has to be a trade. So, you know, I would like to be in a situation where I could make enough money where my, my wife didn't have to work, but that's not the reality for me right now. So, um, so I have to just cut out, like, I'm not going to make my daughter suffer. Like that's not going to happen. I'm not going to make her just sit on an iPad while I fuck off on the internet. I'm not doing that. So at five, I kind of have to turn back into a pumpkin and then you know, around eight or nine or whatever, she finally falls asleep. She goes to bed around seven thirty or so. Um, and then I just, I just work until I go to sleep and then I get up and I do it all over again. That's it. I don't have a lot of time for myself. I've seen my friends about once every couple of months. 
you know, and you're going to be like, oh, I don't want to live that way. Okay. Then you don't have to. Like, I'm not telling anyone this is an enviable thing, but um, I'm trying to keep my job. I'm trying to stay competitive. I, I, you have to work at it. It's not going to happen automatically. Uh, all right, I'll end on this one before we get to the paid questions. Luke, as a, it's got 14 likes. Uh, a recent poll found that 4 in 10 Republicans, I would like to see this cited, for that mass shootings are, quote, unfortunately something we have to accept as part of a free society, end quote. Seemingly corroborating your points from a previous chat, regardless of how utterly reprehensible as you would put it, that is, where do we go from here as a country with such vastly different moral compasses, especially considering issues like abortion and gun control, once again being at the forefront of the, you know, the thing. Um, I tend to think that what we're going to get, people think, oh, is there going to be a civil war? No, I don't think so. I mean, I don't even know how that would work. That seems like a little a little bit dramatic. Um, but what I have heard from political scientists that I have read over the years is that a genuine caution that they have, or at least a concern, is that not... I mean, dude, like, look at both parties today in Congress. They don't do much legislating. They don't solve problems anymore, <laughs> right? And you you can make this argument in either direction, and you know you can. You can say whatever you want about your preferences. You know what I'm saying is true. It is a lot of posturing on social media. It is a lot of pandering because of our primary system to the most hardcore of the basis, particularly on the right-wing side and how they do it. But that's not exclusively true. It's certainly true on the left as well in certain ways. Um, these are actors designed to carry out cultural grievances on behalf of the people that they got elected by, they do very little governing. They do very little problem solving. They do very little addressing of our problems. All of our major problems have been problems for quite some time, like our supply chain problems. Yes, it was exacerbated by our current set of conditions, but that has been a, a, a weak point that went unaddressed for a very long time. That's part of a neoliberal scam on top of it. But, you know, uh, you know, gun violence didn't start with uh, Uvalde um, or you know, you sort of name the ongoing issue that, or name the large issue that a lot of folks care about. These are not, in large part, new problems. These are homelessness, for example, in major cities in certain ways has gotten worse by virtue of skyrocketing rent prices, among other considerations. Um, but, you know, homelessness is not new to big cities. It's not new to Washington, D.C. It's not new to Chicago. It's not new to New York. It's not new to, you name it. It's not new. They've just done nothing about it. They've done nothing about it. Now, part of this, I've said this before, like one thing America did really well po post-World War II was they there was this massive, and again, uh, obviously post-stock um, market crash of 1929, massive infrastructure development projects that were really fixing highways and building roads and um, all other kinds of ways to facilitate commerce in terms of shipping lanes and whatnot. There, America used to build things. And now there are so many laws and regulations, and I've said this before, in the blue cities, dude, blue cities rent, you know, who can you blame for that? You can, Like, dude, in Washington, D.C., it's nearly 100% um, left-wing people here, nearly. Like, I think Hillary Clinton won with like 96% of the vote. You can't blame Republicans for any failed projects, like the, they wanted to build a Purple Line metro. Now, that involves a lot of other states and considerations, but like, you, who, who are you going to blame for high prices here? Who are you going to blame? You, you have no one to blame except the left. That is the only people who have ever been in control since I've been born around here. That's it. That's all you can blame. And so we have these uh, people, these NIMBY folks. I've talked about this before. That is, is like the rich old folks in Palo Alto, for example, who don't want um, anything other than their 
single family homes with their yards to be protected so they can lower density and keep their prices high because we've sort of told the world that home ownership is the most important thing and it's the only way to accumulate wealth for long-term um, concerns. And so the point I, I bring up all this is to say is like, uh, they don't do a lot of governing at all anymore at virtually any level. It's a lot of just weird social media posturing and cultural warrior grievances. Now, to the question you raise, I don't know if this poll is true. You are telling me this without citing it. So without that citation, I don't know what to make of it. Let's assume for the sake of argument that what you're saying is true. If it is true, I will tell you that I've had I've had thoughts about leaving the country, to be perfectly honest with you. Now, not in some kind of like, oh, if Trump wins, I'm moving to Canada. Like, I don't even know where I would go, to be honest with you. But there are more... There are between four and 500 million guns in America. The, the problem is already here. The toothpaste is out of the tube. You're not going to run that back. To, in order to meaningfully address that, you would have to have massive um, gun control measures exerted over a long period of time, which would require the political and constituent will to do that, of which there is none. Let me be very clear about this. Nothing is going to happen for Uvalde. And by the way, that's not just true with gun control. There is no federal plan to put armor on schools. And by the way, what are you going to do when kids play outside? You're going to put a fucking four-sided Berlin wall around them so they can't get hit? I mean, there's no plan for that. There's not that's that's fucking that's just a complete and total lie. Individual districts might do more to up police presence here or there, but there is no real federal plan to address any of this. The plan is the same plan these fucking people had for COVID. They're just going to let it be what it is. We're not going to really, they're not really interested in solving problems. They're not interested in introducing policy interventions to address societal issues. They're just going to let it be what it is. So I'm going to tell you what's going to happen, which is what I've picked up on from political scientists that I've been reading in the last year or two, which is Ultimately, the government will just grow increasingly unable to address the needs and it will go, grow increasing, increasingly sclerotic and incapable of doing things. And I can tell you, I've been to places like that. I will tell you, like, you know, my, my wife's country is wonderful, Colombia. They don't do shit really to address a lot of their problems. Now, they have a different situation because their economy is underdeveloped. So, to the extent that it, and it's been one of the more successful economies in the last 10 years or so by virtue of some policies that they have introduced. But I've been in places where the government just can't do much and doesn't do much. It's not an enviable place to be. And it is where we are headed. It is where we are inexorably headed. We are headed there without a shadow of a doubt. So what I would tell you is get ready. No one is interested in governing. We have passed a series of laws already that makes engaging in any kind of meaningful change um, difficult. There is the way which we set up primaries makes addressing the needs of anyone except the hardcores of individual parties uh, inaccessible. And um, we're fucked. We're fucked. So that's what's going to happen. I hope you have a nice jar full of thoughts and prayers because that's the reason politicians only tell you that when something uniquely terrible happens. They don't have the capacity or the will to do anything else. I suppose if there was another 9-11, you might see another ramp up of the security state in that way. Maybe that would be true. But ramping up of the security state since 9-11 has been a complete disaster for this country as well. So, um, welcome. welcome. Welcome to your new reality. All right. Let's see what you guys have 
for paid questions, and then we will call it a day. Oops, wrong one. I hate to be a bummer, but that's what it is. All right, here we go. Every UFC unfiltered, Paul and Kiesa can't keep Connor's name out of their mouths. Most fans think Connor needs a tune-up fight, and with the UFC going to Euro, Europe, Europe, why not UFC Dublin, Connor Felder, Kiesa Gunner? I wouldn't hate it. Um, I do agree that he needs a tune-up fight. I do agree with that, not because he's bad, but because, dude, you need a tune-up. You need to get right. Um, it's just, I don't know. It, listen, um, but if you're Connor, we don't know what Connor's thinking. Maybe Connor's thinking, I've got one or two more fights where I can give a fuck and then and I'm out. Maybe that's what he thinks. We don't know. Maybe he thinks I want to get the title back. Hard to say. But if he's if he is thinking of his career as, I got a few more of these and I'm done, then you know maybe there's no real point to this. But if you're trying to get him back to where he was, yes, I would agree a fight like that. By the way, Felder's a, that's a winnable fight for Paul, I think. Um, but yeah, I would agree that a tune-up in one way or the other would be necessary. It's just a function of what he wants. On James Cross's podcast, he talks about gambling on fighters that he trains and corners to win. Do you think he could possibly run into some issues either with the commissions or the UFC by doing this? I don't know what the rules are for that. Pete Rose obviously got, you know, massacred for something similar. Um, but in baseball, which has this religiosity attack. You ever seen old baseball fans talk about baseball? It's the most annoying shit on earth. They talk, I mean, you ever seen Field of Dreams? What a jack-off fest to baseball, if ever there was one. They treat baseball like it's got this religious reverence to it, and it's America's game. It's a fucking okay game. I like baseball. It's fine. It ain't that great, all right? You know, please, lighten up with the tones of, you know, we need to have a priest bless the field and, you know, <laughs> I'm eating and drinking the body of Christ before games, uh, you know. That kind of, I mean, what, it's ridiculous the level that Americans talk about the sanctity of the game. Get the fuck out of here with this. Anyway, um, uh, I mean, the thing is, the incentives to win in MMA are so strong that betting on a guy losing would be weird. I guess you could do it. Dude, I really don't know. I, I honestly, this is a, a real blind spot. I need to make a note of this. I actually don't know what the answer is with this kind of stuff. I do agree you get to a real dicey place, but the consequences of losing, I think, are so strong that it would keep most of this activity away. But imagine the fighters all of a sudden do get a union or Ali Act or whatever, and they're making a lot of money guaranteed either way. What happens then? I don't know. It gets a little... Hmm. MK should add a picks segment. Even if you complain the whole time, I need help losing money. <laughs> Thanks for the content. Yeah, you would lose money with my picks. I don't I don't present them to be quite good. Um, that's funny, though. Is there an argument to be made that 145 actually has the best top five in the UFC? Bantam and Light are more stacked, but with the likes of Volk, Max, two all-time greats, Ortega a year, and uh, you, say, or you, say, you list Ortega twice. You go Volk, Max, Ortega, Yair, and Ortega. I would still say Bantam is a little bit more, but I agree. Like the top heaviness of featherweight is remarkable. 
What do you think is the ideal amount of sparring for up-and-coming fighters who are looking for longevity and a good career? That is up to their coach. I would say minimal, but um, that's a much more difficult question for the coach. Curious of what you think of the Obi-Wan show on Disney+. Plus After the fourth episode, which came out yesterday, I'm not sure Disney will ever make something outside of Mandalorian that is outside the range of bad to meh. I saw the first two episodes and I thought it was shit. I thought it was pure shit. Now, I'm going to try and follow up. I did not think Moon Knight was bad. I told you guys this before. I didn't think it was bad. I just kind of got lost in like ancient Egyptian lore as like a thing I need to buy into. Um, but I just thought Obi-Wan was boring and shitty. I agree Mandalorian's been great. I've loved the Mandalorian. Um, and you guys know I think Boba Fett is the most overrated fucking loser ever. It's like the guy, they had to make a show for him to catch some W's because all he ever did was take L's in the movies. Couldn't fight for shit, couldn't do anything. But um, the first two episodes, I found, yeah. I, I tell you what I did, I watched the first three episodes of season three of The Boys. Holy fuck. Have you all seen The Boys? I know most of you probably have. If you have it and you're like, oh, I'm superheroed out, perfect. Got just the movie or the series for you. What a great show that is. The Boys, two thumbs up. Prime Fedor versus Prime Stipe. Who wins? Ooh. Stipe could win with the wrestling, but Fedor's speed and explosiveness was remarkable. Hmm. I might say Prime Fedor, but that's certainly debatable. On the promoting fighter subject, the last time I remember seeing some really well-made promotion was on Jack Hermanson and Sean Strickland. Yes, there might be something uneven to it, but I think if you just looked at all of the assets that they produce for a given event or a given fighter over time, it would be considerable. Certainly, they, they, I mean, if, I'll be honest, if there's an organization you can blast for not promoting their fighters, it's actually Bellator. I don't think they put in, this is my personal opinion, I don't think they put in much of an effort. Not a very successful one. Who is the biggest name in the UFC that Jake Paul could beat at boxing? For me, Lawler, Nick Diaz, but who about their current prime? Oh, I mean, they got some old dogs in there that he could win. Like, who's the biggest name? Let's see him against Tommy Fury. I mean, obviously the Diaz names would probably be the biggest ones if he could. Let's see how he looks against Tommy Fury. But yes, Diaz would be the answer there. If you had to pick one fighter, MMA media member, and someone behind the scenes in MMA, i.e. Dana, Mick, Sean, Scott, but they had to do it through a lie detector test, who are you choosing? You mean like for an interview? I would pick Dana. Uh, win or lose UFC 275, would Jan Blachowicz versus Yuri Prohachka make good sense to come next? Yeah, uh, well, no. I mean, oh, I see. So if... Yuri loses, you could make it. And then if Yuri becomes champion, you could just make it under different considerations. I suppose. What do you think would be matchup style? What do you think of the matchup stylistically? Who would you favor? Um, Jan's got a good chin. Checks kicks really well. He can wrestle a little bit. I'd I'd, I might favor... Uh, we need to see him against... Glo Here's the thing. What does the Glover fight hinge on? The Glover fight hinges on... As long as that fight is on the feet, I'm not saying Glover can't or won't win, but I wouldn't favor it. I would favor over time Prohachka to win because he takes a lot of punishment, but so far he's got an iron chin and that open loose style 
gives way to and makes room for his finishing instincts. So on the feet, it's his fight to lose. Conversely, on the ground, my hunch, and this is the part that's unclear, is that it's Glover's fight to lose by virtue of his great takedown abilities. And obviously, we know he's got good ground and pound. He hunts for the back. He can pass guard. There's a lot he can do there. And there is an open question about exactly how good Prohachka's ground game is. We've seen flashes of it. It's not been brilliant, but who knows how it exists today. Assuming Glover shows us that those concerns we had about Prohachka's ground game are real, then I would say I would favor Jan. If, on the other hand, he can't really get it or can't make much use of it, I would probably switch my pick. I think it hinges on that. Luke, huge fan and fellow DC native. Well, hello there. Would you ever consider arranging a meet and greet for MK and LT fans from the DMV? We could do one when BC comes down here. BC's going to visit down here um, soon, in like a week or two. And we're going to hang out. We could do one then. We are working on something for International Fight Week. I don't have anything to announce just yet, but we're working on something. So if you're going to be out there, we're going to have something. It's weird, man. I used to never get recognized in D.C., even when I was on like Spike TV's and MMA Uncensored Live. And uh, it happens almost every time I leave the house now. It's crazy. And that, that one has caught me by surprise, very much by surprise. <laughs> Good question. Luke, are you going to a white guy or a black guy for that fresh cut? That boy looked good. A Latino guy. <laughs> Diego's his name. He's good. Uh, I sent the Camp Scoville seasoning to the P.O. Box. Yes. I'm going to get it uh, probably today. What is it? Thursday. I'm probably going to get it tomorrow or Saturday. I'm going to pick it up. So thank you for your patience. I genuinely appreciate it. I'm going to get it. I'm going to try it. I will give you reviews. I'll give you guys some pub as well. Um, thanks, Luke. Sorry for the confusion. Oh, and you put in my DMs on Instagram. I'll have to take a look. Um, I will do it. Camp Scoville has sent me stuff. I've been putting it off because I've just been really, really busy. I will get to it. I will go. Thank you for sending it. I'm going to try it. I hope you're having a better week than last. I definitely am not, but I appreciate the sentiment. Have you seen the French film A Prophet? I have not. If not, I strongly recommend it. Okay, I will add that to the list. Thoughts on MVP versus Mike Perry in BKFC? Um... I don't, Jesus. And BKFC? The ring is so small that many of his advantages might, I, I still might favor MVP, but Mike's tough. Um, someone says the MMA guru said he looks up to you. I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, let's see. Anything else? Oh, a couple more. <laughs> Money doesn't solve problems, but sometimes it helps. Yeah, I still have to pay the rent on the office. That my, my lease is up in there. August is the last month I have to pay. I really am using all the money from that to pay that off, and then I'm, I'm going to be done with it. But I tried. It didn't work. It was, it was the, I've said this before. Getting an office was the right idea. Getting that office was the wrong idea. From a guy with a bunch of nephews, get some ice cream for your daughter on me. Well, thank you. I will. I will do that. That's very, very kind of you. All right. Thank you, guys. Very, very nice of you. I appreciate it. Now, one more note. Remember, last week I ended this and it was like 40 seconds long and it was a disaster. Give it some time. If the YouTube fuckery happens, it should be okay. Either way, um, I can download this and then uh, put it for uh, clean upload on podcast. Okay. Should have my computer back. 
uh, by Saturday. Reminder, there'll be a post-fight show live on the Morning Combat channel as soon as that's over. I also have a video up today talking about uh, Tim Kennedy's appearance on the MMA Hour with Ariel Hawani. You should check that out because I think it's pretty important to talk about some of those things that he mentioned. And uh, yeah, I appreciate everyone who left the donation. appreciate anyone who left a question. appreciate anyone who watched or listens to the podcast. I take none of you for granted. And you guys, um, you make my week every week. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. I'll talk to you next time. And until then, uh, stay frosty. <laughs>